Uh, I'm not going to read every verse in Genesis 31. Uh, you can make an argument for or against doing that. Uh, but let me, let me tell you a little bit of the method behind my madness. Uh, we're going to get to this in some application here in just a minute. One of the things we have to do uh, as a church located where we are, uh, geographically and also on the timeline of, of Christian history, is we've got to begin to see Sunday morning not as the very baseline of my discipleship. Meaning, if, if what happens from up here in the Lord's Supper and corporate prayer and the preaching time is the baseline of all you'll ever know, we're going to fall woefully short. There's a precious doctrine called the priesthood of the believer <laughs> that, that we need to lean into as followers of Jesus Christ. And that is you, by and large, where we are located geographically, have not only one Bible, but multiple Bibles. On your phone and in print. And more importantly, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. And if you're in covenant fellowship, you should be in face-to-face relationships with other covenant followers of Jesus Christ who also have Bibles. The baseline of our discipleship is face-to-face, word-saturated, spirit-moved, life-on-life discipling. And I will go a little deeper into that in one of our points of application. So I'm not going to give you the full measure of all of Genesis 31. A, you, your attention span is not conditioned for that. It's just not. Some of you maybe, most of us not. Uh, number two, this is best served relationally, face-to-face, Bibles open, Holy Spirit growing us in the faith, ready to multiply us. So we're going to draw out a few things. And I'm going to trust you and your radical life groups to get face-to-face, life-to-life, Bible open, Holy Spirit working this stuff out. Okay? You good with that? Or nervous? I don't know. You're not making some noise, okay? You good? Awesome. Thank you. Good job. Here's the banner I want to put over this. Romans 15, 4. Paul says to the church at Rome, For whatever was written, Bible, in former days was written for our instruction. That, purpose clause, here's the reason it was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, which is what was written, we might have hope. Paul's writing to church at Rome to encourage them that what was written in the manual for them... Genesis to Malachi was written for their instruction so that they would endure. They, they might have teaching to endure and be encouraged and have hope. Which is Moses' intent when he pens this to his people as they have come out of Egyptian slavery and are wandering in the wilderness. He is writing the theological and practical instruction book as he is inspired by the Holy Spirit to do so. So that they might have instruction and they might endure. And that through the scriptures they also might have hope. So Moses' intention is Paul's intention is our intention. 
is that we would come to this text and we would be instructed by it, that it would produce endurance and that we might be encouraged and that we also might have hope, okay? And so that's where we're going. That's the banner that's going to set over this. So what I want to do is give us some big picture observations and then we're going to really dive into some practical applications, okay? I'm going to read some of the passage, okay? But I'm going to, the first observation needs to be a gospel application. And so we're going to look at it from that high level. And here it is. The first observation is Genesis 31 shows us the gospel call of Exodus. The gospel call of Exodus. As you follow the narrative of the book of Genesis, we're seeing Exodus emerge as a theme. God is going to call Abraham to Exodus to come out of Ur and from his family's idolatrous worship and go to the place God shows him so that he will worship the Lord, the one true and only God. And then we're going to see here his grandson, Jacob, now be called to an Exodus to leave, come out of the clutches of Laban's almost indentured servanthood, and go back to the place God called his grandfather to go to, which is the place they were to mobilize from to the nations. And the book of Genesis is going to end and transition us to Jacob's people in Egypt, where they will be called by the Lord to Exodus, to come out of that slavery, to go to the place that God has prepared for them. And then we get some application here in just a moment. We're going to look briefly at Luke chapter 9 where Jesus is transfigured and he speaks about his exodus. Literally, the word used is his exodus. Speaking of his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection and his ascension, his work of salvation. So when you take a a, a big 100,000 foot view of Genesis 31, you need to begin to recognize the theme of exodus. That God is saving Jacob. God intends to rescue him from the clutches of Laban. And he intends to bring him to the place he intends for him to be. That he might get on with the mission God has called him to. And that's the mission he gave his grandfather. And that was to be a blessing to the nations by making the Lord himself known. And so there's this gospel call to leave these clutches, these things that hold you. And go to the place that I have prepared for you, that you might be my witness. And we're going to get to some application of that. So that's big picture observation number one. Big picture observation number two. We're going to see here in verse 1 to 16. God continues to reveal himself. And he calls Jacob to obey. Okay? Calls him to obey. Those are two intentionally chosen observations. He speaks... He reveals himself, and the mandate on Jacob's life is you have to act, Jacob. Okay, here we go. Genesis 31, beginning in verse 1. Now Jacob heard, he heard that the sons of Laban were saying. So he's hearing what Laban's kids are saying. He's hearing the news. He's got his ear to the ground. He's paying attention. He's listening to what's going on. And here's what he hears. Jacob has taken all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. So Jacob's now observing the countenance 
of the one that he is indentured to. Verse 3, then, so he's hearing and he's observing, then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. God begins to reveal Himself. He does it circumstantially and directly by speaking His Word to him. Jacob's beginning to recognize in hearing, "Mm, we're not as favored as we once were. Things aren't necessarily what they used to be. And then he's observing now his father-in-law, who's tricked him, who's held on to him, doesn't think the same of him also. And so now he's beginning to have this thing go on where he recognizes things aren't what they used to be. And then the Lord says directly, return. That's an action, right? Return. Meaning Jacob is going to have to do something in response to what he's seeing and what the Lord is saying to him. And he's going to have to return to the land. Which means Jacob is going to have to gather his family his possessions, and they're going to have to walk and move to a different location. Jacob is hearing. He's hearing the Lord. He's learning who the Lord is. He's growing in his faith. And we've seen that as we've studied through Genesis, that Jacob, the tricker, the deceiver, the one who grabs the heel, the deceiver, is starting to grow in his faith. He's learning to hear the Lord, and his actions are even starting to line up. So God reveals himself. Jacob's starting to realize there's obedience that's required. Verse 4 to 16 unpacked for us Jacob speaking to his family. It's interesting that their motivation, particularly his two wives, has more to do, as you read that section, with the fact that their father no longer has the bride price that Jacob paid for them. They recognize that everything that Jacob paid, everything that their father used to have, really now belongs to Jacob. And their point is, there's nothing for us here, so Jacob, do whatever the Lord tells you to do. Their motivation is less the Lord and more the stuff. But Jacob now has this, okay, there's agreement, we need to leave. But Jacob's motivation isn't the stuff. Jacob's motivation is the Lord is saying to me to go. And he goes to his family and asks, what are we supposed to do? And he gives his justification. I have been integrous. As a matter of fact, let me just read for you a few of the verses here. Verse 4. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father doesn't regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. That's going to be important later. You know that I've served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped will be your wages, then the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and has given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream. So God's been giving him dreams. He's been showing him what he's doing. That the goats that mated with the flock were striped and spotted and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob. And I said, here I am. 
And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock and that are striped and spotted and mottled. For I've seen all that Laban is doing to you. So you're seeing here that God's looking out for Jacob. Right? Jacob's followed the Lord. His theological understanding is little. But he's hearing, he's obeying, and God's growing his understanding, and God's protecting him from Laban. Laban's intention is to milk him for all that he can get out of him. He's tricked him with the wrong wife, milked more years out of him, and God has been watching and he's been protecting. So he gave him a dream and said, here's what's going to be produced, and I'm going to make Laban give them to you. So Jacob's just receiving. He's simply receiving. Verse 13, I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now rise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah, so that's what he's saying to his family. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? There's nothing here for us. Daddy ain't got nothing no more. Verse 15, are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. You see where their motivation lies. And by the way, God's going to work in spite of them. Matter of fact, the one he loves the most is going to be the one who poo-poos on Laban's little fake deities. And there's going to be a point proven in that, that even these idols that aren't really God's, if they could save you, they would, but she's sitting on them and they can't even cry out to be known. Moses is speaking a word to the people. There are no other gods. These idols can't talk, they can't speak, they can't hear, they're nothing. They've been sat upon on the saddle of a donkey. And their owner can't find them because they are not gods. There's one God and His name is the Lord. It is Jesus. So, so Rachel is all about the money. Leah's all about the money. Jacob's trying to hear and obey. Verse 16, all the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. It's just frankly, just an observation. It had been really cool if they said on the front end, whatever the Lord said, do it. But I find interesting here, their motivation for following the Lord Jesus is, you got all you need, so I guess do what the Lord says? That makes sense. In other words, it's easy to follow Jesus when you can see a way. So their motivation is, you got all that used to be my daddy, so let's go. So their heart is in the stuff. Jacob's just trying to see what's going on and hear the Lord and obey. And God continues to reveal himself. And even in his wife's foul motives, he gets an affirmation that, yeah, we probably ought to go. Well, we see that Jacob's going to obey the Lord. I love we see in verse 17 to 21 that Jacob is just flat out going to go. He's going to go. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. And he drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained. The livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep. So Laban's not there. So he's picked a pretty good time. And Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him. That he intended to flee. So he fled with all that he had. And he arose and crossed the Euphrates. And set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. I love the fact here that 
Jacob just obeys. He picked an opportune moment. And he simply up and goes. Rachel in this instance takes these household deities. And there's all kinds of speculation. Why did she take them? I think it's interesting to note God doesn't rebuke her for that. There's a theological implication here. And I've already stated it. That in her taking those. She may have perhaps been strengthening her claim on the inheritance because these deities represented protecting Laban's inheritance. And by doing that, she was saying, and God was saying, that I've given all that he had to Jacob. Could be that. Or perhaps Laban used them for divination to try to find out what was going on. And so by taking them, she's protecting them from being found out. We don't know. Or perhaps it's just simply to spite these so-called gods. We don't know her motivation. But she takes them and God doesn't rebuke her for it. That's interesting. It's interesting. And, and, and I think the reason, as we've already stated, is very simply, they aren't gods. <laughs> and, and it was an opportunity for God to make a point that these are nothing. They're demonic. I am the Lord. You obey me, not them. But either way, she takes them and Jacob tricks him. And it's interesting. Laban, who tricked Jacob... Now gets tricked by Jacob and Rachel. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. And by the way, side note, this isn't in your notes. This is free. Sowing and reaping is a biblical principle. God has wired it into created order. It's just the way creation works. Other false ways, call it something, they, they call it all manner of stuff. Karma, right? They... Other, other religious systems have picked up on how created order works and they give it a different name. And let me just say this to you just as a little, little side note for you as Christians. Listen, sowing and reaping is not karma. Sowing and reaping isn't, isn't some godless process. Sowing and reaping is how God wired the universe to work. And even unbelievers recognize that if I do something foolish... It's going to come back on me. What we recognize as Christians is it's not blind force. It's God working providentially for His people. That even unbelievers may sow trickery and God will turn it back on the unbeliever to rescue His people. This is why Paul will say in Romans 8, 28, this beautiful reality that we know that for all those who love God, God works all things according to His good purpose, right? For those who love Him and called according to His purpose, God's able to turn the trickery of those who seek to do harm for the good of those who are being harmed. Because whatever they sow, they're going to reap. You try to take advantage of God's people, God will turn that on those who are taking advantage and give justice to His people. Because God's a God of justice. And so in this instance, these false gods, these items of divination, who perhaps used to trick Jacob, God now turns it on Laban and sets his people free. He's going to do that in Egypt here in a few chapters. So God's revealing himself to Jacob. Jacob is simply obeying the Lord. He's up and gone. And we notice in verse 22 to 42 that God protects Jacob as he obeys. Laban's going to come after him. Verse 22, and it was told Laban on the third day. So it's been three days. He took his kinsmen with him. So Laban doesn't just go himself. He's grabbed folks. He took his kinsmen with him and pursued. The language is interesting. He pursued for seven days, following him close in the hill country. Right? You're going to see in verse 25, he overtook him. 
right? He pitched his tent against him, meaning Laban's coming with ill intent. This is military language. Laban's coming hard. Seven days, he's using to catch up the three-day lead that Jacob has. And he is coming to overtake him. But I want you to notice verse 24. God speaks. There's no indication here that Laban follows the Lord. He's got idols. But what does God do for Jacob? God comes to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. The Lord in that dream is beginning to take the edge off Laban a little bit. You're trying to overtake him. You're going to pitch your tent against him. You're trying to go get what you think is yours. Don't you say anything good or bad to my son. So God's protecting him. And so we see that Laban does overtake him. He pitches his tent against him. And he comes and he says, why did you take all my stuff? You took my kids, my daughters. Why didn't you let me have a chance to say goodbye? Jacob's going to launch into his reasons why. Laban's going to go search for his idols and he's not going to be able to find them because they aren't real. And he has been tricked. And then Jacob gets angry. Verse 36, Jacob begins to berate Laban and he lays into him hard. And Laban starts to back off and he realizes this is a lost cause. And we get to verse 43 and we see that as God's protecting Jacob... God is now going to set up a distinction between Laban and Jacob. As a matter of fact, you get a hint of that early on uh, back in around verse 17 on where Laban is now referred to as the Aramean. God is beginning to draw a distinction between his people and those who are not his people. And Laban and Jacob are going to set up monuments beginning in verse 43. And Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters and the children are my children. The flocks are my flocks and all that you see is mine. Which is hogwash. He's still trying to make his case. But what can I do this day for these daughters or their children whom they have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I. And let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jager Sahadutha. But Jacob, Laban called it that. And Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we're out of each other's sight. If you oppress my daughters, if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Jacob, then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and this pillar which I've set up between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness. And I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap or this pillar to me to do harm. God protects Jacob and begins to separate his enemy from him and protect him from his enemy. I think verse 53 is absolutely fascinating. Jacob displays his fear of the Lord. There's a little bit of a translation challenge here. Um, Your translation, most of us are using the ESV. If you're using the New American Standard or even the NIV, it says the same thing. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father judged between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Me being a language nerd and a translator guy, uh, don't like any of those translations. Because the translators are giving you this sense that Laban is speaking about Yahweh, the Lord. The word God is actually plural, and it's the gods of Abraham and the gods of Nahor, which is his brother, right? Now, Terah, 
had three kids. Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. Right? Or Terah had, uh, had this family. So, so Jacob uh, has Nahor, who is a grandfather. And he has Nahor, uh, who is down the line here. So what we have here is this little thing here where we're speaking about the gods of their former life. And Laban is saying, may these gods of, of, that used to be of your family, and it's interesting, Laban is even looking at Abraham as still having those gods, which shows you the distinction that was between them. They were not communicating. And so the, God of, the gods of Abraham and the gods of Nahor, the gods of their father, judge between us. But I want you to notice something very important here. Jacob did not swear by that pact. Jacob swore by the fear of his father, Isaac. This is huge. We see here something that there's growing a nuance in Jacob's theology. He's learning who the Lord is. And there's this general sense of let's swear by the gods of our ancestors. And Jacob doesn't do that. He swears by the God of Isaac, his father. The one who's revealed himself at Bethel. The one who's shown him who he is. The one who told him you need to get up and go. In other words, Jacob's faith is growing. His understanding is increasing. And he refuses to categorize the Lord with any other deity. And so Moses is showing us here that there is a distinction because there's one God, there aren't many gods. And there is no pact set up but one set up under the banner of the Lord. There's an exclusivity to the worship of Jesus Christ. And you see it in the nuance of this passage. All right, here we go. How are we going to apply this, right? How are we going to take this information and do something with it? Because I said to the, at the beginning, I said at the beginning, the essence of your discipleship can't be information that comes from right here. We've got to do something with that. Beyond even what I'm going to tell you right now. And I'm going to give you my reasons for that here in just a minute. So I need you to hang tight with me. How are we going to apply these truths? Number one, Jesus is our exodus. Jesus is our exodus. You know, we did a series several years ago. We preach through 16 verses in the Old Testament that help us to see that the gospel is a biblical gospel. That it isn't just a New Testament thing. The gospel is on every page of the Bible. And we're getting glimpses of the gospel here that God calls His people out of Exodus. And you look, Luke chapter 9, verse 28 to 36, Jesus is transfigured. His glory is shown on the mountain with just a few. And it says He spoke about His exodus. Literally, it's the Greek word exodus. His departure, it's translated in your Bible. Meaning, God's exodus is a work of salvation. That what God was doing in Abraham, rescuing him from these many deities, what God is doing in Jacob and rescuing him from the clutches of sinful Laban, and what he's going to do in rescuing Jacob's descendants from the clutches of the slavery of Egypt, is what Jesus is doing for us ultimately when he goes to the cross and he dies in our place for our sin, and he is buried and he rises in his sins and secures salvation for all who will believe. He has provided an exodus, a salvation for his people. So that we look and we see this glorious theme that when Jesus saves us, He calls us out of darkness to light. He calls us from death to life. He brings us out from this and sets us over here in this new creatureliness of being a follower of Jesus. Jesus is our exodus. So this morning, this morning if you're downstairs, I hope you heard some nuance. You heard some things. You learned a few things. Can anybody see in something that was said? And something that is here, how there's a gospel opportunity to somebody who might actually listen to one of our texts. Did you catch that? 
This is evangelism 101. This is not New Testament, but there are some things in your Old Testament that, yeah, we see. Right? Here is a grand opportunity to say, this is Jesus at work in his people. And draw those connections here because this theme of Exodus is fulfilled in Christ. And it gives us nuanced understanding what Jesus did for us. He called them out into. When Jesus saves, he calls us out into. That affects our discipleship. He doesn't just call us out and leave us. He calls us out, he saves us, then he gives us a mission. He called them out to set them free, not just so they could be free, but so they could have a place to launch the Great Commission from, that they might be his witnesses in all the earth. He saves us out of, not just to go to heaven, but so that we can be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So we see this theme of Exodus, it's a call to salvation, and it's a call to mission. It's from to, not just simply from. And this is where our gospel presentations need to shift. We need to stop inviting people to heaven and invite them to the mission of Jesus, to know Him and make Him known, to come out from darkness to light and making light known, to come out of slavery to sin into righteousness and to make that message known to others. That our lives are fully orbed, not because we know information, but because we've been saved and we now have an ultimate mission in life. (laughs) Our city's hungry for that. Half of them, no, nay, a hundred percent of them think they're going to heaven because they believe in some nationalistic Christianity they were born into. And have no sense of actually following Jesus. Stop asking them to believe in Jesus and go to heaven. Invite them to a life well lived for the glory of Christ among the nations beginning from Rome, Georgia. In their vocations, redeemed in their workplaces. That's the exodus. God just didn't call them into the wilderness to wander in this ethereal heaven. He called them out to march into the land, to set up shop, to preach Jesus. Jesus is our exodus, church. Observation number two. And this is, this. God, man, there's so much to say. Huh? We, we have to learn, we have to learn to hear and obey God as the base of our discipleship. We say KDSC, right? The gospel kingdom makes disciples in domains of society. And from there, Jesus builds his church, right? You've heard that a hundred times. The implications of that are rich and thick. They vertically align everything we do with our vision. Keeps us narrow, narrowly focused. Discipleship. KD. Discipleship. What is discipleship? So much of our culture teaches discipleship as information-based. It's linear. It's Christianity 101, Christianity 201, Christianity 301, Christianity 401. And if you get to 401, you're doing good. Or it's Christianity according to John Piper, or Christianity according to Matt Chandler, or Christianity according to J.D. Greer, or Christianity according to whatever popular person, or Christianity according to Beth Moore, or Christianity board of Jen Wilkin, right? What, whatever is there. And, and we see our discipleship as an act acclimatizing to or gathering to ourselves better quality type Christianity, right? It's Hillsong. They got the best worship. Or it's Sovereign Grace, right? And so we judge the quality of our faith by what we are consuming or gathering to ourselves. 
What I want us to begin to see here from Genesis 31 is for Jacob, discipleship was not information. Nuance in his theology came after he obeyed. Not before. He doesn't swear by the fear of his father Isaac until after he hears the Lord and gets up, gets his people and his animals and marches them across the Euphrates River. I don't know if you realize this or not, but that's not easy. You and I would probably take a boat. Hey, we might not even go to that part of the world where the Euphrates is at. But he had not one piece of cattle, but thousands. And not one wife like he ought to have had, but two. And all these kids and these animals. And he marches them across the river with tents. Because God said to In obedience, he heard the Lord, he obeyed the Lord, and nuance in his theology came later. Listen to me very carefully. This is where rubber meets the road. Our discipleship has to grow from information-based to obedience-based. Here's why. Current event. Anybody know who John T. Ernest is? Raise your hand if you've heard the name John T. Ernest. Fascinating. Fascinating. I guarantee you, if a Muslim shot up a church two weeks ago, and I said for you the name of that person, you would have heard it. You know what happened last week? An Orthodox Presbyterian in California, 19 years old, who was raised with the creeds in a gospel preaching, gospel saturated, Bible-preaching pastor and parents grabbed his automatic weapons and shot up a Jewish synagogue because he got discipled by somebody who believes in kinism. Listen to me. This is huge. This is real life, real world. A month ago, white nationals burned black churches. And those white nationals claim to be Bible-believing Christians who likely have degrees and who have Bibles and went to church and Sunday school, meaning right information may not always lead to right acting. John T. Ernest affirmed the Westminster Confession of Faith. He went through the class. He knows it, but it isn't connected to his actions. You know what happened? Somebody discipled him. And it wasn't anybody in the church. What was more effective, the information or the face-to-face? Clearly the face-to-face. Because it led to the shooting up of Jews in the name of Jesus. That's your Orthodox, Presbyterian, 19-year-old, youth group graduated kid who knew all the right stuff. Meaning, it is not enough for us to know. We got to do. You might think of anything Jesus said that might address that. Hmm. Maybe Matthew 7, somewhere around verse 24. He who hears these words of mine and does them. Is a wise person who builds their house on the rock. He who hears these words of mine and does not do them. 
is foolish. Build their house on the sand. So we can sit here and hear a sermon. We can sit here and hear the gospel. You can go to First Sunday. You can go to TRCU. You can go to another Bible study, another church. You can do a Beth Moore study online. You can do a hundred things to gather information. But if we don't act on them, our discipleship is incomplete. You know how our brothers and sisters do it overseas? They do 30 minutes of study and the rest of the day practicing what they read. You know the video I showed you of Dion last week? Remember that? Either obey Christian, disobey not Christian. There's no such thing as disobedient Christian. That's, that, that's foreign to the Bible. To say, I know all the doctrines of Christianity, yet not make any disciples, is not Christian. I don't know what it is, but it's not Christian. So what we've got to get ourselves to, Three Rivers Church, is understanding our discipleship can't be, I went to church on Sunday, Jolly preached a heck of a sermon. I'm going to go listen to it on the podcast again. I'm going to read his blog. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. No, that's good. It's not enough. Now, you can start to feel the conflict, right? Because I don't know where I'm going to fit any time in with other, other people. i got other stuff to do. Well, I guess it's a question of am I going to follow Jesus or am I going to follow the system of the world? Because the truth of the matter is, our discipleship has to move in the area of obedience. The crazy thing about poor old Jacob is he didn't really have anybody else. His wives are about the money. He's hearing the Lord and going, well, I guess we better go. Information is important. It's not enough. I would argue right information is learned better as we hear the Lord and obey the Lord with somebody in covenant community obeying together. You ever notice Jesus sent them out two by two? You think Jesus is just pulling stuff out of the air? You think Jesus is going, hmm, this is, oh, let's try this. Boom. No. Because we're made in the Trinitarian image of God. Everything that happens effectively in the kingdom is done in Trinitarian image, in community. Never in isolation. Never. It's not the image in which we're created. We're created in the Trinitarian image of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Meaning God designed us to function in discipleship together. Not isolated, listening to a podcast. Not sitting in my chair, though People around me alone, listening to a preacher. But taking the word of God and face to face, life to life, Bible open, wrestling through content and obeying it together. Three of us church, you want to grow? That's how it'll happen. It won't happen by inviting people necessarily to this room until you face to face them into the kingdom of God with the gospel and Bible open. Guess who's not in this room? Nadim isn't in this room. He came, he engaged, he left. You know he'll be in this room? Face to face, life to life, him in my house, me in his house, you getting to know his people, Jesus giving dreams and visions, the word being effective, the gospel being powerful and changing his heart. And you know what? He will have been discipled into the faith already. He'll know more Christian theology than many Christians by that time. I think it's important to recognize through church, if we're going to grow, it's going to be because you, not me, 
life to life other people into the kingdom. In covenant community, we call radical life groups. Practically, here's what that might look like. There's probably somebody in your group already who just needs to know more of the Lord. Maybe they don't know how to pray. Maybe they don't know how to read their Bible. You know who's going to teach them? You. This is one of the things I walked away from on my sabbatical. I need to spend more time with less people. Now, that sounds harsh, but I can't spend time with all of you. It's just physically, practically impossible. But you know who can? You. Right? Jesus modeled this, did he not? In the 12, he had three. Didn't he? Who are we to think we're better than Jesus? I, listen, I can't hardly find my keys half the time. I had a wedding yesterday. Weddings just, just absolutely obliterate everything about me. Like, they're just awful. Not that it's not precious and I'm glad to be part of it, but just if you screw up, you mess their whole day up. So the pressure's high. I mean, it's emotionally draining, right? And so Jennifer and I are at the, at the wedding, and so we go home to drop stuff off, and, and I'm going to ride with her because so, we had two separate cars. We had to go separately. And, and so I get in the car with her because we finally got her air conditioner working, and that was awesome. So we didn't have to drive my truck, which is hard to park downtown because they don't like big trucks now anymore. And parking spaces are narrow because they're wussification of america and so can't drive a truck anywhere anymore so i mean a, a real truck big truck so uh we drive her little car downtown and i stuck my my keys in the seat so we get home last night and i get up and go inside and you know get a shower and go to bed because early morning and so i'm i'm rolling out of the bed at 5:45 and getting up and going can't find my keys i'm starting to panic right Oh gosh, where are my keys? Got the flashlight, trying not to wake anybody up, looking around. I got to get over here and turn the air on, right? And try to just make Nadim's coming. Just so, so many things to do. And, and, and just, I'm in a panic. Can't find my keys. It hit me. It hit me. I was like, I think they're in the seat of the car. So I hustle back home and lo and behold, there's my seat. My keys. I can't keep my keys. How in the world can I spend time with everybody? I can't. It's just not possible. I can't even find my keys. How am I going to find you? So here's my point. You have to be a disciple of Jesus. I have to be a disciple of Jesus. I spend time with a few. You need to spend time with a few. And guess what? If everybody who follows Jesus helps somebody else follow Jesus, you know what's going to happen? Roman Floyd County will be changed. It will not be changed inviting them here to consume preaching and consume worship. It's just not going to happen, y'all. Everybody tries that, keeps trying it, start worship services, and they fail. Why? Because worship services don't change people. The gospel changes people. How's the gospel going to go forward? Face-to-face, life-to-life, us obeying Jesus and making disciples. Because we can't afford for them to believe the right things and then not act on it. Like John T. Ernest. Now, do I think we're going to produce a John T. Ernest? No, but I'm telling you what, my antenna's up. I don't want anybody... To come out of this fellowship having believed the right stuff and hate black people, hate Jews, and hate Muslims. You see what I'm saying? He knew the right stuff. So listen, three of his church. Let's learn to hear and obey. Let's be like Jacob in the example God worked out for us in his life. Obedience is the true test of discipleship. If Jacob had heard the Lord and went, oh, that was, I love that experience. Man, I love hearing the voice of God. That was awesome. And he gathered a few people around and said, I heard the Lord. That's awesome. I 
Lord, would you speak again? Because that was cool. Now, could you maybe speak some more? Tell me some more stuff? Oh, that's cool. We say it now and it's kind of foolish. You're like, that's dumb. Right? But I'm not really that much different. I just want the Lord to speak, and I get the experience, but the Lord doesn't speak so I can have an experience. He gives a decree and a word for me to obey because he who hears these words and does them is wise. Obedience is really the true test of discipleship. If Jesus said to make disciples, and if we're not making disciples, are we obedient followers of Jesus? Negative. Find somebody, get face to face, teach them how to follow Jesus. If they know Jesus and are learning to follow Jesus, then you demand that they find somebody and teach them how to follow Jesus. That's when radical life groups will explode. That's when the gospel will go to our county. Discipleship is, or obedience is the true test of discipleship. Discipleship crescendos when we act obediently together on God's word. Discipleship deepens as we learn more about God through acting on his word. God protects his people clearly in the passage. The nice thing is you don't have to worry about whether or not God's going to protect you as you seek to make disciples. You get clear enough example here that God can speak to unbelievers to leave you alone. And you know where you'll find the experience of that? By being out on the frontier of Roman Floyd County and the nations where you're exposed and all you got is the Lord. Finally, your nuance theologically will happen. As you hear the Lord and obey Him. As you read your Bible. As you do life with other people. You share scripture with other people. And you disciple other people. Nuance to your theology will happen. There's no such thing as staying stagnant in the faith. We're always growing. We're always growing. We should be always growing in Christ. And if you have the Holy Spirit in you. And you're reading your Bible. You're always going to be growing. Verse 53 shows us that Jacob's theology is advancing and nuancing. Notice here he doesn't rebuke Laban for what he says. He just simply swears by the fear of his father Isaac. Now, we're gonna, I don't want to get too far ahead, but in chapter 32, Jacob's going to get to wrestle with Jesus in person. And he doesn't win. Jesus is going to figure four, leg lock him, hurt him, and he's going to limp away having seen God face to face. And Jacob will re, be renamed Israel. The Son of God. Which, by the way, when Jesus calls Himself Son of God, that's the connection. Jesus is the obedient Son. He's the obedient Israel. And the head of the new tribe, the new Israel, the people of God, the church. That's for next week. But Jacob's theology is growing because he's obeyed. And as he's obeyed, he's seen the Lord do something, and he's having to go back and go, gosh, look what God did. And now it's no longer the gods of my forefathers. It's my father knew him. He knew the Lord. And so he's the one who told me to get up and go. He's the one who told Laban to leave me alone. I'm not swearing by them that are no gods. That can't speak out from under the saddle that my wife is sitting on. I will swear by the Lord. I'll swear by the Lord. His theology is growing. So you want your theology to grow? Obey the Lord. Obey the Lord. And you obey the Lord, and nuance will begin to develop. As we do that, we'll be obedient followers of Jesus Christ. The Everest Church, I want you to want discipleship like that. I want our city to taste us like that. That's how we'll reach Roman Floyd County. It's how we'll reach the nations. That kind of discipleship. You know what we owe the Lord? We owe the Lord worship.
So we're going to do, we've heard the word, now we're going to respond in song. So here's what I want you to do. Band's going to come up, I want you to pray with me. And then when it's time, I want you to stand and sing robustly to the Lord. Robustly. Worship is also obedience. It's commanded of us. It's not optional. Sometimes worship, you, you know what, let me just say this, I'm sorry. Listen, sometimes, sometimes the atmosphere is not worshipful. But you know what? The Bible never says when the atmosphere is not right, stand there with your hands in your pocket. Sometimes we bring trash in the room emotionally. Sometimes worship, we don't feel like it. You know, worship is commanded in spite. So here's a test of discipleship, of obedience today. Worship the Lord in spite of how you feel. Give him, as Pastor Emmett said, thanks. My hunch is, as we obey the Lord and worship him in spite of how we feel, he has the ability to do whatever needs to be done to make all right and to get us through. So, after I pray and the band, band leads you, I'm going to ask you to just sing. Just worship the Lord in song. Just do it. And as we surrender ourselves to the Lord, you know, you might just have a nuanced component to your theology that grows. And you see, God's sovereign over my worship. Hmm. That's kind of cool. And you'll go away, and you know what you'll start doing? You'll start plowing through the Psalms going, look, you look for that. Now, where is that? Oh, look at here. This is good. We go from strength to strength, and each one appears before God in Zion. That's good. You took me from strength to strength. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us. We want to be a people who worship you well. We want to disciple well. We want to be good disciples, so help us to be that today. And Holy Spirit, I want to ask you to speak to us right now from your word, um, all the ways you need to. There's no way I can address every heart situation, but you can, and so I'm trusting you too. So please do that. Help us to be followers of Jesus well today. Good followers of Jesus, obedient followers of Jesus. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would guide us into obedient worship. Well, don't let our worship be contingent on anything atmospheric. But obedience to take delight in you. Lord, in spite of that, I do also ask that you would come against anything that sets itself up against us taking delight in you. Knock it down. Knock it down. Help us to worship well this morning. Holy Spirit, I ask that you will move your people to obey as we sing, but also speak clearly to them. Holy Spirit, take the word that is soaked in our hearts and give us instruction. It may be for reconciliation. It may be to deal with sin. It may be for forgiveness. A thousand things. You choose. You know us. You know our hearts. Pray you'd work powerfully to make us obedient followers and worshipers of Jesus Christ.